0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a
1: producer. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. Listen, we are in the thick of the holiday season, whether we like it or not. You know what that means? You've got lots of gifts to get, so let me tell you the number one no-brainer Broadway gift to get for all your friends that love Broadway. It's Be a Broadway Star board game. Surprised? Beabroadwaystar.com, a no-brainer Broadway gift for all the Broadway fans in your family. On to the podcast. Hello, Producer Perspective podcast listeners. Welcome back to the show. Uh, as you all know, it's hard enough for people to make it in this business in one discipline, and my guest today has made it in two. I'm thrilled to have on the podcast today two-time Tony Award winner for Best Direction and two-time Tony nominee for his performances as an actor, Mr. Joe Montello. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Ken. What's amazing about Joe's directing resume is the incredible amount of diversity in the material. Joe, you're a guy that's directed everything from The Vagina Monologues to The Odd Couple to Love, Valor, Compassion to last season's Act of God, Assassins, Other Desert Cities to that little show that no one has ever heard of called Wicked, uh, Revival of Blackbird this season. I mean, this is the resume of like five different people combined. So let's start with that. A lot of directors consider themselves musical guys or classic guys. How is it that you're able to do such a diverse group of material?
0: Well, I, I mean, I've always been um, a, a fan of people like George Wolfe and Jack O'Brien, people who actually do go back and forth between the two forms. Um, I guess I've just never placed any sort of limitations on myself in terms of the material that if it speaks to me in some way, that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to translate that. My, my passion, my enthusiasm for the for the project.
1: So let's talk about what or how you choose material? Because as a director of your stature, I'm sure you get offers all the time for all sorts of things. What makes you say, oh, oh, that one, I want to do that play, whether it's off-Broadway or Broadway, musical or or drama?
0: Mm. Um, It's a slightly mysterious process. Um, I would say that it's similar to meeting someone at a party and slowly falling in love with them. There's, there's something that, that sparks your curiosity. There's uh, a response to a kind of intelligence and honesty that makes you want to see them again and or turn the page. Um, and it really is that. It's, it's just the material. I, I, I described it at one point as there's, it's like, um, like a little bell goes off in my head where instinctually something about it feels right. I would say that in um, recent years, I've also added to that that, I, that it's important to me that there's someone in the room that I'm going to learn from and or be challenged by. Um, I, I don't have it in me as much anymore to just do a project just to do a project, that I, that I really want to do something that's only it's going to make me better. So let's go back and start with your story about how you
1: got started in this business.
0: Uh, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Um, we were very fortunate in that our little city had quite a bit of community theater, summer theater. Um, I went to um, high school with, uh, you know, Bob Greenblatt? Oh,
1: yeah. He did a I podcast remember. here a couple of weeks he ago. Yeah, he yeah. talked about you a lot. He said <laughs> so you grew up together. We, we
0: did. We grew up together and, and Bob, uh, we went to the same high school and... And I always attribute the professionalism of our high school productions to Bob. That even then, he had a very, very high standard. And so, you know, obviously we would kind of try to mimic, you know, the the productions on Broadway. And I think we even borrowed, you know, you, you rent costumes and we would replicate the sets. And so we had a great high school program. Uh, there was a professional theater in town. There were a couple different community theaters. And so we would, we were, you know, if you were into it, you could just go. You could have a, a year full of four, five, six shows and never really stop. It was amazing. It was amazing. And my high school at that time had not only Bob, but it had Maren Mazie, Jody Benson. Um, there's a there's a writer named Linda Wallum who created Nurse Jackie. I mean, there were there were just a lot of us there at the same time.
1: And you decide, okay, I'm going to do this as a career. I'm going to jump on a bus and go to New York.
0: I did no. I, I at the last minute, I sort of decided that I would I wanted to pursue acting as a career. So I went uh, to the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston Salem, North Carolina for four years. It was a conservatory program for four years. Um, had great training there. Um, One of my classmates is a writer, screenwriter, novelist, playwright named Peter Hedges, and uh, he wrote What's Eating Gilbert Grape, among many other things. And we had a little theater company called the Edge Theater when we graduated and we came to New York. And Peter would write plays for the company, and they were all usually people who had graduated from North Carolina or we're still going there. Mary Louise Parker was one. K. Todd Freeman was another. And so we sustained ourselves by this little company where we would self-produce at a time in New York where that was actually possible. You could find a space that was somewhat affordable, uh, You know, rehearse something in your off hours when you weren't temping or having a restaurant job, and you know, run for two weekends. And it was all, um, they were all plays that Peter wrote for us. And then I joined the lab at Circle Repertory Company, and over the few years became a company member there, and that's really the place where I first started directing, first in the lab, and then they moved uh, a show that I directed in the lab to the main stage. And um, that's really where it all started, people through their support and encouragement and nurturing.
1: So what was it about directing that attracted you to that, to step in front of the stage, if you will?
0: Again, it was just an instinctual thing that... that I mean, for a long time, for the first few years, I didn't dare call myself a director. I was kind of dabbling, and maybe that was just to give myself an out, you know, if it didn't go well. But the more that I did it, the more that it felt like the the right fit. There was something about it that suited my personality. I mean, simultaneous to all this, I was in Angels in America... And so, though it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision of ending one career and starting another i did i I was aware of the fact that it was unlikely that I would ever have a role as great as Lewis Ironson in. Angels in America, and that everything would probably be downhill from there. So it kind of just, it was the simultaneity of those, those two things of being in this extraordinary play, having this experience, feeling like on some level that that was as good as it was going to get, in a great way, you know, like it, that was the pinnacle, and, and, and also having this burgeoning kind of directing career starting at the same time. So it was a, it was a kind of a seamless segue um though i can't pinpoint an exact moment where it happened i talked to a lot
1: of people that want to transition their careers some even lawyers that want to get into the theater now. you know much older in life
0: uh-huh.
1: how difficult was it for you though at that time to be an actor and walk into a cocktail party or an industry event was it to be like oh i'm a i'm a director now i want you to think of me as a director was it challenging for you did you find the industry was supportive of that or were they were like oh go here we go joe you're such a great actor please don't don't do this now just stay doing what you're
0: doing well first of all i would say that i don't think anybody was saying you're such a great i don't think my my stopping acting was a great loss to the to the to the acting world so i don't think anybody was clamoring for more um, you know, it wasn't it was again, it wasn't that there wasn't that kind of distinction. I didn't go to bed one night an actor and wake up the next night a director. It was it was more that I just started taking more directing work and then after a couple of years of it, I think I had to finally admit to myself that this is probably what I was meant to do, or something at least that felt much more comfortable and and a better fit. So it wasn't, you know, like, I, I, I'm watching, like, Michael Orden now, who really was a proper actor. You know, I mean, he really was a proper actor, or is, maybe still is, I don't know. And and it's it, it's so fascinating to watch him have this success. And I'll be curious to see what happens to him over the next few years. You know, I think there's certainly people like Austin Pendleton, who has been able to really sustain both careers over many, many, many years.
1: I want to switch. Uh, I've never asked a director about the, the casting process, yes. frankly, what you look for when you go into an audition room. You talk about when you're reading something, a bell goes off. Yes. Does a similar bell go off when you see a performer that you're like, oh, this is a person I want to work with? Or? What's that process
0: like? It does. Well, first of all, I have to say, I mean, I loathe auditions. I, I think that's, you know, left over from the days where I was on the other side of the, uh, of the door. So I think I have, uh, I hope I have uh, great sensitivity to the bravery and courage and fearlessness it takes to walk through that threshold and face a table full of people. Well, in fact, I don't sit at a table. I, I think it's, it's, it really is a leftover from that. Like I, I usually am to be found standing in the corner, wedged in the corner, you know, Writhing with sympathetic nausea for for people who have to do it so i'm never I never sit at the table. I tend to greet actors at the door so that I can just have a moment where I check in with them, and that if I have an adjustment uh or want to continue the work somehow i'll I will pull them way to the other end of the room and we'll just have this private little you know, conversation, because it's really my time and their time to see whether we're a match. You know, do we speak the same language? It's so brief, that time together, where you have to make that, you know, really crucial decision. And I want to see if I'm able to, both if, are we communicating? Am I I saying something that's going to make sense to you? And are you, you know, it's your chance to check me out as well. That being said, it really is instinctual. Um, you know it's kind of cliche to say but I've been in those rooms a lot and I do know that what you want as somebody who is casting something is you really are hoping for the best you're really hoping for that person to walk in the room so there are things that I've learned from from being in auditions on the other side of the table that, that I wish I'd known as an actor which is kind of come in do your best share your take on it Walk out with your head held high, go have a hamburger, and know that there's nothing else you can do. You know, quite often, I mean, you've said in these auditions, you know that a really brilliant person will come in, give a fantastic audition, and not get the part. I wasn't aware that that was true when I was acting.
1: Do you have a preference of plays versus musicals to direct? If you had a choice of only one to do for the rest of your life, which one would you choose?
0: It tends to be that I'm, I'm deeply enamored of the one that I'm not doing at the time. Uh-huh. Um, I think if I had a choice, I would choose plays. I, I love directing musicals. I like, the, I like the camaraderie of a lot of people in a room. That's, that's really invigorating. Um, I think that there's a kind of musical that I like that uh, sometimes is in fashion and sometimes isn't in fashion. I, I would, you know, there there are musicals out there that I would just have no idea how to assemble them because they're they don't quite make sense to me. But you know, I like Sondheim. I like something like Once. I like you know, I like a small intimate musical where where it's about actors who sing, which is ironic given Wicked, the size of Wicked, but uh, but I think. If, if I had a gun to my head I would choose plays
1: so since you bring up the Green Giants <laughs> yes yes let's talk a little bit about this and I'll tell you a little story okay so I was at Angus having dinner one night when you were in rehearsals before you, Wicked went out of town mm-hmm. and Norbert Leo Butz comes in and your original Fiero right yes and we're sitting down at a table and he saddles up to the table and someone says oh what are you doing right now he says I'm in rehearsals for Wicked and all of us oh right How's that going? And he looked at all of us and he said, you know what? This is either going to be the biggest hit that Broadway has ever seen or the biggest disaster (laughs) in the world. Um, And obviously it went on to be the biggest Broadway hit that we've seen. Uh, Did you know? Tell me about that process early on. Did you have those same feelings of like, oh my gosh, this is so big, so huge. The San Francisco tryout was a little troubled, quote unquote, Uh right? started late, technical problems. What was the beginning of that like?
0: Well, first of all, I would say I remember Norbert's skepticism very well. (laughs) He may be skeptical to this day. Uh, It was, uh, I guess I don't remember us having a troubled technical period in San Francisco the show was still finding itself. I think I wasn't aware that it was going to be the kind of juggernaut that it became, but I did think that it was a great idea. I mean, the story that I've told before, where it was kind of the defining moment for me, was uh, on our first preview when Dina Menzel made her first entrance as Alphaba, as Young Alphaba, and two doors opened at the back of the stage and she came running towards the audience. <laughs> And the house erupted in cheers. And and Edina, though sort of known at the time, it wasn't entrance applause for an actor. It was the kind of great affection and excitement that people had at seeing the Wicked Witch of the West. And so I remember distinctly at that time having a moment of, oh yes, right, we've got that in our corner. We've got the Wizard of Oz in our corner. And people's great, deeply felt passion for that story, you know, and, and how it's a part of all of our, you know, growing up. And um, so, yes, and then, but then, you know, when you're in the midst of something like that, it, it's your job, and so you just show up every day, and you you try to make it better, and, you know, and, you, and maybe I was naive at the time, I think that certainly was part of it, Uh, but I just kind of showed up and tried to make this thing work.
1: Do you remember the bell that went off in your head when you first read it or looked at the material that was like, oh, this is something I really want to be a part of? Because you have an innate ability to be able to, your, your track record, you're very successful in terms of the number of hits versus misses. I look at you as one of those people that, oh, if he picks something, this is something really to watch. So I'm just curious about what it was early on.
0: Um, with, with Wicked? Yeah. I remember reading the, uh, getting a draft of the, they had been, they had been developing the material for, I want to say, over a year without a director. So that was uh, Mark Platt was kind of creatively producing it with Stephen and Winnie at that time. And they had done a workshop in L.A., and so I received that draft, um, which was vastly different than it is now. Although the kind of the the signposts along the way, all of the all of the songs that people know and love from Wicked, they were all there. The story was just it started in a different way. And and along with that draft of the script, they sent a recording of that reading, and Kristen Chenoweth was in the reading. And I remember there was something about her performance that was uh, educational to me because I thought oh there's some she there's something in she has exactly the right tone that this that this material needs and we have to and it's just, so I tried to dissect what that was which you know ultimately for me was there was a nod to the glinda that we all know and love and yet it was entirely her own creation. And so in some ways that became our our mandate for ourselves which was that we had to we would often talk about it as as if the you know if someone while they were making the film if they just panned right and you got to see something that wasn't being the thing that wasn't being filmed that that was always what we set out to do I and mean, particularly in the second act when it really meets up with the the film of the wizard of oz um so it was it was something in her performance that spoke to me
1: and i assume you like to get involved when you're directing a new musical early on in uh-huh. the process do you find that directors, this it's the same dramaturgical process for musicals as it is for plays. Do you get involved with plays as early as you do musicals and help the authors put all those pieces together?
0: It's different uh, case to case, um, but I do think it's, for me, it is the same process that you ask the same series of questions. Does it make sense? Are you, you know, are you, know, are you staying on track? Um, why does it need to sing here? Is this the right? You just—it's just a series of questions that you keep asking yourself. And I think, you know, what I try to do when I come to rehearsal is to literally, you know, take a shower from the day before, sit down in my seat, and approach the material from a fresh point of view, and and watch it as if I'm, you know, seeing it for the first time. And does it make sense? Are we tracking it? So those I ask, for myself. I ask the same questions if it's a musical or a play.
1: Like I said, you have this huge Playbill vault page with these all, these all these shows, lots of them hits, but of course not everything in this business can work. Is there a show of yours that you remember hearing that bell go up like, oh, I really want to do this, that didn't work out, that bugs you to this day?
0: Yes, I mean, I think there, there are a few. Um, I think what, you know, to me, uh, you know, a, a vital invigorating creative process doesn't necessarily always add up to commercial hit. And so there are, you know, one of the best times I've ever had on anything I've ever done, and I think I can speak for the company and everyone who worked on it, is 9 to 5. I mean, all of us, to this day, count it as, you know, one of our favorite things that we've ever done. It was just... It was not only fun, it was we enjoyed being with each other. We believed in what we made and uh, we liked what we made. And um, it was instrumental to me in at that moment in my life. To really start to identify the reason that I wanted to do something and to not kind of just hand it over to the gods and say, you know, fingers crossed, hope it's good. But so that, so that, in fact, I was going into something able to, was going to articulate what I hoped to achieve from doing the thing for myself. So that at the end of the process, I could say, yes, I, I was able to achieve that, or no, I fell short of my expectations. or uh, But 9 to 5 still to this day one of my favorite things. I've ever been involved in. It was just it was infused with the energy of Dolly Parton. If you know Dolly, it was just it was impossible not to have a great time.
1: And when something doesn't work out, how do you how do you deal with that? When something and nine to five I I had a great time, didn't have the (laughs) longest run obviously, but still ran a very respectable run. How do you deal with when something doesn't get the reviews that you hope it will get? Do you read reviews?
0: I do read reviews, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, yeah. and when you 're proud of something and you put your where and the bell has gone off what do you how do you deal with it when the industry doesn't or the public doesn't respond
0: um well obviously it's disappointing i'm you know i 'm a human being and 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 hopefully by the by the time you 've spent in the case of a musical years and years and years on something like like a uh, last ship, which we worked you know maybe over four years on and there was great passion for the for the material, and it's it seems incredibly disappointing. Again, what I've been able to learn over the years is that I cannot let the critical or commercial outcome be the defining, the overriding defining moment of the experience. You know, I'm incredibly proud of Last Ship. I wouldn't have. I don't think any of us would have done it any differently. It was so remarkable to be in the room with all of those people for that amount of time and you know that's what i remember that's what i take with me you know if you do this long enough you know that you are going there are going to be those moments where it doesn't for whatever reason you know smart people can come together in a room a lot of smart people can come together and it just doesn't work and if we knew why someone would have done something about it but I try to have my own definition of what makes something a success. So to me, Last Ship was a success. To me. And I claim it proudly. I carry it with me. i learned a lot that I will then hopefully bring into the next experience. And that's how, you, that's how you continue to get better if you're going to get better. I mean, and you have to have those moments where you fall on your face. It's not about that. That's, that's inevitable. It's how you deal with it. Uh, there was a moment, I think several years ago, where in the midst of several of these kind of, um, I hate to use the word failure, but uh, these moments where things didn't turn out, I had to check in with myself and say, you've gotten away from something in you, you've lost track of something, and you only you can get it back. And I made a definite decision at that point to go back and work off Broadway, and to really um, embrace the restrictions of not being able to throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at a at a problem, but that to really kind of reconnect to to go back to those early days of the edge theater where we had literally nothing. So how we solved the problem was everything, you know. And 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 I so for about a year and a half, almost two years, I really went back and. And, and said, like, you know, I have to for myself figure this out because I'm dangerously close to losing the thread here.
1: If the Smithsonian called huh? and said, Joe, we have room for one of your shows that you've directed in the Institute, is there one show that you'd want them to remember as a Joe Montella directed piece? Just one. You can only pick one. I can only pick one. I would
0: say um, it would probably be Assassins. I felt that that production came closest to the vision that I had of it in my head, and I think it's sort of it is the best of what I do because you know, I mean, obviously it is a musical, but it's also it's very much a play as well. And it was an extraordinary experience. Everything about it, I, 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 it was another one of those experiences where to, to be in the room with those artists was, you know, it was like the pinnacle of everything.
1: You talk about the closest to the vision in your head, and I think a lot of people don't realize how challenging it is yeah. to direct a show on Broadway these days, whether it's stagehand restrictions <laughs> or budgetary restrictions. What do you think the greatest challenges for you as a director today when you're taking on a a new
0: piece? I think it actually has very little to do with the practicalities of making the thing, which, you know, there's a certain inherent challenge in doing that with another group of artists. I think it's, to me, it's that there's a kind of, um, what's the word, uh... The the world at large that is experiencing these things has become slightly cynical. And that I miss a kind of a discerning eye. What you get is a kind of sense of from the first preview, oh, it's not good enough. These these kind of the kind of the, the art police, I guess, you know, that start a lot of noise around something. And so that sometimes what you have to do is you know there's the there's the narrative of the thing that you're making in the room with that group of people and then running parallel to that is this buzz say particularly in in the commercial theater and you know the buzz has to me no impact on the thing that we're making and yet it does you know i mean we have we have critical minds out there who acknowledge in the first paragraph of their reviews you know, what someone is saying on a chat board. That to me is antithetical to making things. I don't understand that. It's very, very easy, I think, under an alias to come to a first preview and make a pronouncement. My name is on everything that I do, and I stand by it. So I find that it's not frustrating as much as it is. It was just sort of irritating and unpleasant and and a reality that I've You know, been able to, you know, I I don't want to say make peace with, but uh, accepted.
1: What do you think the major differences are between working in the nonprofit, large scale nonprofit versus large scale commercial? Do you have a preference?
0: I don't. I mean, I like, uh, you know, what you have is a guarantee of an audience. That can also be the challenging part of it because they're not choosing to see your show they're choosing to become subscribers or members at a theater whereas you know hopefully when you're doing something in the commercial theater someone goes to the box office and buys a ticket for your show because there's one or more elements that they're very curious about or passionate about or interested in that's not the case of nonprofit. profit so they you know they both have their benefits and and i don't know it's I, I don't really. I don't. I don't make draw that kind of a distinction. What just make the thing.
1: <laughs> One of the things I've noticed about interviewing uh, lots of people for the podcast is some of the most successful people I've talked to are all, especially in the theater, are amazing collaborators. So, and from the beginning, you talked about your high school, which had all these people that you were around, and even yeah. college. Um, obviously, collaboration is such a key part in the theater, and you've collaborated with all sorts of folks, including a lot of big, big stars. Uh-huh. So, you work with Julie Roberts, you work with Beth Midler, you work with Sting. What's it like working with some of these people that have enormous personalities, shall we say, uh, because they're such enormous public figures for the first time and you're getting them in the room? Is it different than working with a journeyman actor or actress? That, it, I
0: mean, it is and it isn't different. I mean, it is different in the sense that, you know, most of those people have reached a place in their career where they don't have to do theater. So they're choosing to do theater. So right off the bat, you're engaged with somebody who's curious about the form. And that's great. But, you know, I mean, when you walk into a restaurant with Sting to have a meeting, you're walking into a restaurant with Sting. Yeah, I remember when doing uh, Three Days of Rain with Julia Roberts. You know, if you spend a few weeks with Julia Roberts, Julia Roberts becomes the person that's in the show. And we were doing our first preview and it was a spring night and I was in her dressing room and she had the window open and I heard all of this noise out of the street and I stuck my head out of the window and there was like throngs of people standing outside and I came back in and I said, Oh my God, you're Julia Roberts she was like, Yes And I, had, I said, you know, you were the, you were the actor in the play. To, you would become the actor in the play to me. So I don't know. I mean, I've been, I've been really lucky, I guess, in that, you know, almost all of those people that you mentioned have, have really approached it with a certain amount of uh, humility, curiosity, um, you know, a sense of bringing themselves and what they're good at to the table, but also understanding that this was a new form for them. You know, to me, honestly, in, in my experience, I would say it's not the superstars who will mess you up. It's the amateurs. You know, I want to be associated with people who are really, really good at their job. That makes That's going to make me better. That's going to make me stay on point. The amateurs will will get you every time.
1: And what about working with producers? You've worked with obviously some great producers out uh-huh. there, David Stone, Bob Greenwood, all these people. How is that relationship for you? What kind of characteristics do you look for in the producers that you want to work with?
0: Well, I think you know, it's you 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 want somebody who who has a great track record in terms of the their taste, their ability to um, keep something running, defining. You know, I mean. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, Wicked opened to very, very divided reviews. You know, the dailies were almost all terrible, and the weeklies were pretty good. And as much as I really attribute the creative development of the show to Mark Platt, I would say that the ability to find an audience that wanted to see Wicked was really David Stone. And David and I did our first Broadway play together. And it closed after two weeks. And what I've always admired about David, uh, because it was humiliating for both of us, but certainly for him, as his, you know, I, I, had had, I, I had Love, Valor, Compassion that same year. Uh, but for, for David, it was really his first time out on his own, and he'd been working at the Weissler office. And, and I think he would say to you, it was, it was embarrassing. And what I've always admired about him is that he didn't let that experience define our relationship. He didn't cast me aside because it didn't work out. And in fact, you know, it's the longest relationship that I've had with a producer. Uh, and sometimes we work together and sometimes we don't. But he wasn't a fair-weather friend. He was loyal. And I, that, that goes a long way with me.
1: Okay, the last question, which okay. has now become uh, called my genie question. <laughs> yes. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin yes. shows up at your door <laughs> and says, Joe, your contributions to the American theater are so vast. I want to thank you for that, and I want to grant you one wish, just one. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway, that gets you so mad, that could keep you up at night, that you just wish that genie could wipe away in an instant. Is there anything that drives you insane that you'd want changed just like that?
0: I wish that there was an innate understanding um, that it's not... that the the people who are making the shows and the audience, it's not an adversarial relationship. You know, no one is setting out to ruin your night. And that sometimes it takes a while for for the project to find its legs. It takes a while. And that, though I'm not asking, for, um, it's not like, a, I'm not asking for kind of preferential treatment, but just a kind of an understanding that if you're someone who wants to see the polished final form of it, I wouldn't go to the first preview. But if you're someone who's fascinated by process, wants to come back again and see it, or doesn't want to come back, just interested in seeing the first time, then come. You know, I understand the arguments of, well, you know, if you're paying top dollar, or if you're paying full price tickets, then that first preview is a show. I don't know what the solution is. I just know, and this is true of, Almost everything that I've ever worked on is that it takes a few weeks for it to find itself. I wish that there was a kind of understanding and appreciation and respect of that. Yeah, we're one of
1: the only art forms that debuts something brand new and continuously performs it. It's expected to get better and be ready the next day. We don't take a break. You know, yeah. we don't we don't put something up. We don't re, we don't release a film or a play in certain markets and then take it away and recut it. Yes, and then put it back out. Again. And
0: you need to have that exchange. the The exchange between the piece itself and the audience is the final chunk of the puzzle in some way. That you can't go away in a room, or I should say, I don't know how to. I've never figured out a way to 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 make the thing in the room. So that, come what may, the outcome was foolproof, and that that transition from a rehearsal room to the stage didn't have growing pains with it. And in fact, that introducing that element of the audience is the final bit of alchemy that is essential for it to take place, and that an audience actually is very, very useful in the shaping of it. But this kind of disgruntled, show-me, prove-it-to-me attitude isn't, I don't know, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't really do anything, doesn't really help anyone along, it doesn't help anyone get better.
1: For sure, I'm trying to imagine a world, and I guess this is sort of what we do sometimes with off-Broadway, like humans, like you're about to transfer, but imagine a Broadway show where you could have a month of a run and then shut down for a month, go back in the studio, work without stage hands, and then come back and, and continue on.
0: Yeah, but I think, but 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 you will have played a month. And in that month, a lot, of, a lot of noise can start. You know, the first performance of The Humans was very different than it was on opening night. The play demands that. The play demands a kind of a, 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 a subtlety and, uh, and a balance that you can only get by playing it for an audience and learning how to surf it. You can't do that in a room. Those, that those bodies in the seats are important. That exchange between actors and audience is very, very important. I'm not saying you have to like it. I guess I'm just, if you give me a wish, I would say I wish that, that there was a kind of a empathy or a compassion for it.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. I wish the exact same <laughs> thing, especially for all my shows early on. Um, catch the humans when it transfers to Broadway uh, in the spring also catch blackbird which is one of my favorite theatrical experiences of the last decade or so in the city coming back uh, thank you so much for thank being you. here thanks to all of you for listening don't forget to subscribe we'll see you next time don't forget if you want a no-brainer Broadway gift go to beabroadwaystar.com and pick up be a Broadway star the Broadway board game amazon.com's number one Broadway themed holiday gift I'm
0: gonna be a Broadway.